Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to No Limits, a Mitch Rap podcast. So what have you been up to this week, Mike? Virtual school. <laughs> it's happening, you know, just we're almost a month into this whole online learning. It's kind of crazy, but uh, we're making do. We're making do. How are you? Wow. Already a month. Yeah. Time flies. I know. I feel, right? like, I feel like I just saw you, but it's been like three weeks. So Yeah, right. Um, I've been doing okay. Um, down to crunch time. Got three months left up here. Yep. Been getting mainly lab, lab, lab. A little bit of golf. At least nine holes a week. Oh, while, I, while I can. That doctorate ain't going to finish itself. <laughs> no, it's not. Especially not on the golf course. Especially no. not on the golf course. Dissertations do not get written from a golf cart. <laughs> no. Unless you're Chris Furman. Yeah. I was trying to, but I, I, I had to come back to reality. So, but well, a uh, couple of exciting things going on now that the release of Total Power were a few weeks out, and we just found out in the last few days that Kyle made second on the New York Times bestseller list. So nice, nice. Congrats to him again on Total Power. It's really getting a lot of good buzz. A lot of why good the buzz. hell is it number one? Who the hell beat him? It looked like it was, um, uh, yeah, right. I, I have no idea, but it looked like it was. I think Ken Follett, who's pretty big, that Pillars book. I think Pillars of the Earth or something. Mm, but lame. That's yeah. pretty lame. And his books always awesome. look like they look like they're like eight hundred pages. So are people really even reading it, or are they just buying it to put on their shelf and you know show off and look smart? Who knows? Definitely the second option. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Watch them be like really amazing, and we want to start a podcast on his books. And here we are, just like <laughs> crapping on it. <laughs> well, we're the Kyle Mills, Mitch Rapp, Vince Lynn podcast, so that's what we care about. Yeah, you know, sometimes we got to keep in mind we are a, a Mitch Rapp podcast. We have so many different uh, topics we like to yes spin off on. But well, speaking of Mitch Rapp, we should uh, share what's coming next, just so our readers know. I don't know about you, but I'm about halfway through Separation of Power. Because that Same. is, yep, that is our book starting in October. Definitely by the first or second week of October, we will be digging into Separation of Power. So if you want to pick up your copy of that, flip through it, be our guest. Yeah. And of course, we want to take this time to welcome a new patron. We have uh, Joanne C. So thank you very much. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do this without your support. So yeah, thanks for joining, Joanne. Also, we have something very important to give away. Yes. To our patrons. A, a book giveaway, right? Yes, indeed. It is just about the end of the month, so we've taken the names of any patrons who were either new or already with us in the month of September, and we put you in a little wheel that I could spin, and the winner is going to get to pick an autographed copy of six choices, either Executive Power Extreme Measures, Pursuit of Honor, Act of Treason, Protect and Defend, or The Survivor. So, what do you say? Should I uh, should I give it a whirl? Yes, drum roll, right, here please. we go. Wheel of Names. <laughs> I use this with my kids, by the way, in school. I wish I could see it. Oh, looks like I'm going back to the post office. Our winner is Peggy. Peggy G. Nice. Yes. Congrats, Peggy. I'm going to have to get the international mail uh, ready again, knowing you're, you're over in Germany. So um, we'll be reaching out to you about which book you would like us to send you, your very own autographed Vince Flynn or Kyle Mills book. Congrats, Peggy. Thanks for being a patron. Well, Chris, how about you tell us, what are we covering in today's author series podcast? Yes, we are very excited to share with you an interview that we had with an author, S.A. Cosby, whose book came out this summer called Blacktop Wasteland. It was a great read. I highly recommend it to our listeners. If you like crime, thriller, action, you know, like a Mitrap book, not, not quite CIA, but still very riveting. So yeah, hope you enjoy this interview. Yes, and before we get there, though... You know what I have oh, to do yeah. when there's a book that I really do enjoy? You got to give us the limerick. Not every book gets the honor of being reviewed with a double limerick on Goodreads. Ooh, double limerick. Blacktop Wasteland absolutely deserves that honor. So, All right, give it to us. I guess you could say my review of this book is best summed up in the form of a double limerick. 
fighting to provide for children and wife. You could cut the racial tension with a knife. Father and son question what they've done. Was it all worth it for one last heist? S.A. Cosby cements his legacy with this tale of high-octane energy. Beauregard Bug Montage, The Duster and His Garage, read like a Southern poverty melody. Nice. It it sums it up well. I like that. There it is. Yeah. Proud of that one. That's pretty good. All right. Well, we hope you enjoy this interview. Today, we welcome Sean S.A. Cosby, author of the recently released Blacktop Wasteland, which is easily a candidate for Book of the Year, in my opinion. Sean won an Anthony Award for Best Story back in 2019 with The Grass Beneath My Feet, and his previous titles include Brotherhood of the Blade and My Darkest Prayer. So thanks for joining us today. Oh, man. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I I just want to start out by saying this book is amazing. And anyone who hasn't read Blacktop Wasteland should immediately go buy it on Amazon or not, not Amazon, small bookstore, whatever. Get it, get your hands on this book because Martini literally just gave it to me. He gave me the audiobook uh, this week and I just consumed it. I couldn't put, you know, I couldn't stop listening. Um, this, this book was just amazing and I'm so excited to talk to you about it, you know, so I'm going to have you on. Oh here. man, thank you so much. I think I, I, I think with the audiobook, the, the the best part of that is the guy narrating it. Adam Lazar White is just incredible. Um, th- this is my first book with a, a, a big big publisher. My previous books have all been with independent publishers, and there was an interesting little tidbit about the uh, selection process for the narration. You know. They, they they run the deal, they run the show, but they Flatiron gave me a lot of, of 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 input or allowed me to have a lot of input into into a lot of what happened with the book. And one of the things that they did was they gave me uh, a chance to listen to the audition tapes from the narrators. And so I had three that I got to listen to. And it was almost like <laughs> it was like Goldilocks and three bears. This one's too crazy. <laughs> this one's too sedate. And then like this one's just right. And Alan Lazar's uh, Al- Al- Lazar White's narration. It is the closest I've heard anyone come to how I think Bug sounds in my head. And uh, when I first, he, he read, he, they all read the first chapter and he just blew me away. It just, everything from his, the, the tense and tone selection, the voices. Um, it's funny because there's an antagonist in the book and um, there's an antagonist in the book and uh, named Lazy. And I didn't think he was that scary or creepy. And then when I heard uh, Mr. Mr. White's narration, it's like, oh my God, he's, he's creepy as shit. Oh, Jesus. Like, <laughs> no. He's as creepy as Ronnie is dumb. <laughs> yeah, you poor Ronnie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get into that because the amount of depth required in an audiobook, if you're going to voice the character or even in your writing that can get at the things that our hero Beauregard Bug Montage has been through, the things he's grappling with. I mean, this is marketed as a crime thriller, but if you told me this was a psychodrama of a man and his life story and overcoming, you know, ghosts from the past and family issues that are weighing on him, you could have sold this to me as a, you know, psychological thriller just the the things he goes through and the levels of meaning uh what was it like creating a character that was that was this deep in dealing with both the present but also the past the funny thing was when i created when i started writing black top wasteland i really okay so i was inspired to write black top wasteland if anybody that doesn't know black top wasteland is a story of beauregard bogmatage former getaway driver who becomes an auto mechanic opens his own shop and then when we meet him in the beginning of the book he's under a lot of financial strain uh, a new competitor in town is taking business away from his shop. His mother, who is terminally ill, is about to get kicked out of her nursing home because of a clerical error. He has a daughter from a previous relationship who wants to go to college but doesn't have the money. And he has two sons with his current wife who you know, need glasses and braces and all the things little kids need. And so against his better judgment, he takes on a, a job with a former associate, Ronnie uh, Rock and Roll Sessions. And um, as things are want to do in thrillers and, and heist novels, uh, it all goes awry. So when I first started writing it, I was inspired by a movie called Hell or High Water with Chris Pine and Ben Foster. 
And I love that movie. I mean, just it was one of the first movies that I saw as an adult that was able to articulate the pain and pathos and helplessness of being poor in America. And I wanted to write something like that, but I wanted to write it from an Afri African-American perspective because it's different. You know, being poor is bad, being poor and white is, is, is rough, and being poor and black in America is really rough. And so I wanted to write this story that kind of talked about that. But what happened was the character of Beauregard, he just took on, and it sounds cliche, but he really did take on his life of his own. And I, I, I ended up wanting to kind of talk about things, you know, about masculinity, both tragic and toxic, and how we look at the past with rose-colored glasses sometimes, that we look at our, our past and our past choices through the sheen of nostalgia and how that sort of immaturity doesn't allow us to move forward in life and how, uh, you know, we keep, you keep making the same mistakes, but for new reasons. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that. And so I, I did that with, with Beauregard, but I also wanted to, you know, to, to make the book exciting. So there's, you know, there's car chases and people get in the face with ranches. So, um, but um, <laughs> the main thing with Beauregard, I didn't want him to be a stock character. You know, I wanted to take certain tropes of that style. Like I wanted to take the, you know, the taciturn, attitude of somebody like Parker from the from the uh, Richard Stark novels, but I wanted to kind of extrapolate that character and see, you know, I wanted, for lack of a better word, a friend of mine named Tommy Pluck, he says it's Parker with a home life, and that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to see this man who's, incap who's capable of incredible acts of violence and, 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 and daring do, but also what's he like with his kids, with his wife, with his friends. So I kind of wanted to bring those things together and, uh, by the end of the book, by the end of the first draft, it was way different than what I thought it was going to be. But I'm so glad that people um, are responding to it the way they are. Definitely. You said that, um, you know, he's not this stock character. I, I really think you you build upon, you know, this sort of standard heist getaway driver. And a lot of times we also, we often, the, the getaway driver is not like the main, you know, person of you know these heist novels but it was kind of cool to see the aspect of, of them but then also like we don't normally see in a lot of these movies or, or books you know their life I, I really enjoyed seeing that and so you're from Virginia uh I'm also mm -hmm. I'm also from Virginia I was grew up in oh cool. I grew up in Fredericksburg two up two down. <laughs> yes I grew up in Fredericksburg and so my uncle owns a okay. my uncle owns a towing business and like just oh wow okay understanding you know you were able to capture and describe so vividly you know like just like everything that goes on in like these sort of rural communities um you know i i grew up seeing this kind of stuff obviously you know not from the same perspective but i could appreciate and further understand how we live in this time now i mean this novel couldn't have been dropped you know, at a better time. And I want, I wanted to ask if you could speak on that, you know, if that was, obviously yes. it took you a while to write this, but was it intentional <laughs> um, to address some of those topics? I think the thing about it, somebody asked me that question before, and it's like, do you feel like this is a timely book? And I said, unfortunately, yeah, because the things that I'm talking about in Blacktop Wasteland are cyclical. Right. You know, I wrote Blacktop Wasteland in 2016, but the things that I was talking about are still prevalent in 2020 and they were prevalent in 2005. And so, you know, the funny thing about, and you, you might can attest to this having grown up in, in Fredericksburg, the funny thing about growing up in the South or in a rural environment is a lot of times you have more in common with your white neighbor down the, down the road or your black neighbor down the road or the Hispanic neighbor down the road in a rural environment than you would have with somebody from New York or Philly or Chicago. Yeah. There's this camaraderie of poverty to a certain extent. And a lot of people, don't, especially where I'm from, a lot of people, a lot of, some folks don't want to see that, you know, and like, if I go down the street, I live in a small town, I live in the smallest town in Virginia, it's called Matthews, Virginia, we got 8,000 people, wow. it's the smallest county in the state. If I go down the street to the local restaurant, and I see a friend of mine from high school, we can immediately, whether he's white or black, we can immediately start talking about, you know, like, you know, field parties, and getting somebody to buy us Mad Dog 2020 and going crabbing or going fishing or going swimming off the creek. And so those, those that kind of shared uh, mental connectivity is something that makes a rural setting unique. You know, it's a, a rural setting is this weird tapestry that is we're all interconnected in small towns. You know, you're divided by race and you're divided by class, 
but underneath that subtextually you're connected because you're not more than six degrees separation from everybody else in town you know so i'm you know i'm connected to the to the county sheriff because i went to school with his wife's sister and his wife's sister and i were in algebra together and so that connectivity kind of holds it together but it, again you're still fighting the you know the things unfortunately that do separate us and so when i was writing black Taiwan, i wanted to talk about that sort of small town setting where everybody knows everybody where you can walk in a bar and you can see a guy that you know you know maybe you know y'all got into a scrap in high school 10 years ago or maybe you see a guy that just got out of prison he killed his wife and his wife was your your wife's cousin and so that sort of small town mentality forces you sometimes to deal with things or compartmentalize things in a way that maybe you don't have to do if you live in New York. You know, if you live in Brooklyn and you got into a skirmish with somebody, you can go to Manhattan and never see that person again for the rest of your life mm-hmm. and still be in the same state, in the same city. And so it's different in small towns. And so that kind of blue collar working class environment that exists, regardless of your ethnic background, is something I don't see a lot of in modern fiction represented in a way that's to me respectful if that makes sense yeah i love hearing your description of that because i wanted to ask you about painting these settings with your words the place is so powerful in your books as you just explored on a human level and that comes through in your writing some of the similes and the different comparisons of how you describe southern virginia one i could tell you just have a love and a passion for it as the writer but right. it also makes the story pop. It's almost like reading your books was seeing the most vivid colors I could on a canvas. And we're talking about what I think, you know, if you want to say your average Americans might write off as a rural backwater or, you know, mm-hmm. hours outside of a major city. I'd rather read a book that takes place, like you mentioned, Philly, Chicago, New York. But your writing elevates these landscapes. Can you talk about how important it was to describe the settings of a place you so obviously love and the characters in the story are tied to. Yeah. I think with Blacktop Wasteland, which is, it's funny because I'm, there's a, I'm working on something right now that's set in the same location, but it's not as atmospherically dependent as Blacktop. And I think the reason is one, Blacktop is a singular story about one character and how he is navigating his life in this small town. But two, like you said, I love being from the South. I love being a country boy. I love being you know, a, a from Virginia and I love the background, but I'm also fully cognizant and aware of the grotesqueness that exists in the South, the history that goes along with the bloody you know, history. You know, there's an idea among some people that the South is the sole provenance of neo-Confederate and racist apologists. And I'd be damned if that's true. I, I, I will not conceive one inch of my home to anybody that feels that way. My family goes back six generations of Virginia. My grandfathers and grandmothers and, and ancestors bled and died in this land. And so it's just as much mine as it is yours. And so because I love the South, I have a duty to celebrate and criticize her at the same time. And so when I talk about, you know, rolling fields of, of dry corn stalks, or when I talk about, you know, desiccated buildings that have been abandoned how industry has pulled up stakes and left town on the first thing smoking. It's not just to make people feel sorry for us, but to make people feel what is lost in these towns. You know, I grew up, when I was a kid, we had like an ice factory and it was a flag factory. And if you didn't work on the water, everybody worked in these factories and everybody was making money. And, you know, it was nothing for somebody to go to a car dealership with $8,000 in a paper bag and buy a car. No debt. Just let's leave. I want to make one payment as my dad used to say. And so, um, I love that, but I also it, it, I also know that that way of life, unfortunately, has has moved on to a certain extent. And so when I talk about place and setting, it is from a, a sense of melancholy and loss, but also a sense of responsibility. I also I think for me personally, I like to write. Uh, I use a lot of sensory dependent phrases and stuff. I like to use sight and sound and smell and 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 tactile sensation to put people in the story. And, and, you know, like anybody, you can go overboard with that. My poor editor, there's a lot lot of metaphors and similes that are on on this cutting room floor, and and rightly so. But I do really, that's, for lack of a better word, that's my style. I like that. I like the sensation of the heat 
you know, making you sweat and how it feels, you know, the, the leather seat against your back, how the steering wheel feels in your hand or just sitting on your front porch, listen to like kiddies and, and crickets and stuff like that. And so those are the things that not only put the reader in the story, you know, uh, in a sensory auditory or, 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 or way, but also it just, like you said, it allows me to talk about and share with people a place that I really, really love. Yeah. To follow up on that, you obviously have a great appreciation for cars. And I wanted to know <laughs> if you could comment on that, especially like this, um, the main car, the duster, where did you come up with this, this car, the duster? Okay. So I grew up in a family. We, we were, I grew up pretty poor. And so we were shade tree mechanics by necessity. We couldn't afford to go to, uh, to a mechanic. And so we learned to work on our own stuff. And I had a cousin, he's no longer with us, but I had a cousin who was, I call him, um, he was kind of an inspirational bug. He was a Mozart of motors, never went to technical school, never, you know, took any professional courses on how to work on cars. Just, you know, some people can sing, some people can dance, he can work on cars. And so when I was a kid, <laughs> I would sneak out of my house. I was like 12 or 30, I had no business being at the house. But I sneak out of the house and go with him and we go on the other side of town uh, over to Route 17, and we would go drag racing. And, and that scene that's in the first chapter of the book mm-hmm. is based on a lot of scenes that I saw growing up. Uh, a lot of guys would come with their aftermodel, late model cars. And, you know, and it was, it was, it was, you were there to race, but it was also sort of, you know, a, a hangout spot. You know, uh, I, I don't put it in the first chapter of the book, but a lot of times, you know, as a young 12, 13 year old kid, there'd be women there, sometimes girls there, sometimes. So you got everything that makes an American male's heart beat fast. You got fast cars, you got beautiful women, you got a summer night, you know, when the moon is just just right. Uh, and so those experiences really had an impact on me. And so, so I grew up with a love of automobiles and a love of, especially the American muscle car. I, I think, um, I think the American muscle car, there's no better representation of what I consider the best of like the American heyday um, uh, the, or uh, uh, the American ideal, you know, you've got the, you've got the must, the car, the Mustang, you've got the horse, the Mustang. And I think those two are tied together, um, you know, and there's a sense of freedom when you're behind the wheel of a car, you know, there's a sense of, we can literally jump in this car and go anywhere. And when you grow up, you know, kind of poor in a small town in rough circumstances, that dream sometimes is enough to keep you going. It's like, yeah, I'm going to get me a car one day and I'm going to drive you know, across country. I'm going to end up in California or Arizona or, or wherever. I'm going to go anywhere but here. I'm going to get out of here. And so that always stayed with me. And um, so when I talk about the, uh, the scene where um, Bugs reminiscing with his dad, how he can't, his dad takes off and the car is so strong, it presses him back in the seat and he can't touch the dashboard. You know, that's based on a, a real life thing that happened with me and my cousin. My cousin used to have this Vega and, uh, I, during one of his races, I asked him, could I ride with him? He's like, yeah. He didn't have seatbelts either. He's like, we don't need seatbelts. If we crash, we're going to die. I was like, oh, okay. And uh, I remember being in the car, and I remember we were flying. We were doing like 105, 110. And I looked over at him. He's like, you scared? And I was like, yeah, a little. And he's like, he said, well, don't you get scared till I get scared. I was like, it's too late. I'm already terrified. But um. That experience, it, it always stayed with me, and I always wanted to write something about it. I always wanted to kind of put it on the page, and and just use it as um as a, as a as a, uh, a you know sort of a, a tribute to not only my cousins but all those uh, all those folks I grew up with. And that kind of there's a huge subculture in in rural America of cars and fast Definitely. cars and drag racing. Now yeah. I, I wanted to ex- express that on the page. Yeah. So I got to ask you and call me crazy, but I think the duster is a character in the story. And (laughs) the way you wrote this car that is so much more than an object, you know, in Bugs Life, but also Mm -hmm. it clearly stands out and plays a role in the plot and helps advance the plot in so many ways. While at the same time, an off-screen character, Beauregard's father plays such a role, but we never see him. Right. Um, and so is there some sort of interplay between the duster being in the background? It's almost reverentially part of every scene, even when it's not there, yeah. there's this aura of the duster. So we yeah. never meet Bo's, uh, Beauregard's father, but we always have the duster with us. I see it as a character. Is that something you were, you were going for that interplay? It's a symbol. I wanted to be a metaphor for for bug if you want to ask me that's the one metaphor i did 
put in the book intentionally. A lot of other stuff just had my accent, but I really wanted the duster to be a metaphor for Bug and his place in life right now, where he's he's holding on to the past and he it's not healthy. He knows it's not healthy. He's aware that it's damaging to him. And you know, and his wife, who's the, the Greek chorus in the book, who tells him, you know, sell the duster. You don't have to rob this jewelry store if you sell the duster. And you know, we we know we, a lot of people laugh about it because you know, if you listen, like somebody said, if you listen to his wife, the book's only seven pages long. But um, <laughs> but at the same time, he can't because he's not in a place mentally where he can let go of that duster. There's this line that he says, you know, the duster is his dad's. He's a, it's a tombstone to a ghost without a grave. And it's it's that and it's more than that. It's a connection to the kid that he used to be before certain things in the plot happen and the man that he's become. And it's how he's able to just function day to day. I think he thinks without the duster, he wouldn't be able to make it. He would give in to his worst impulses. The duster is there as a symbol of when, you know, the last time he was happy with his dad, the last time things were really normal in his life. And so it becomes this kind of mythological thing throughout the book. It's this, this heirloom, but it's also kind of this cursed heirloom in a way. And um, there's something that happens towards the end of the book when he's finally able to let go of the past and he's finally able to move on and, 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 and you know, deal with reality on his own terms, not, not under the uh, shadow of his father, not under this kind of, shadow or this false facade of 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 tough guy masculinity but really dealing with it as a person and um you know my dad he didn't have a duster but um he had a uh a chevelle uh black chevelle with a white racing stripe nice and um when him and my mom separated um he took the chevelle with him and i always wanted to get a car like that and i knew deep down inside that was kind of my way of trying to be close to my dad to create and hold on to that connection. And I think a lot of guys, you know, I think if you're a, a young man of a certain age and, and, you know, your parents separated and maybe you don't have the best relationship with your father, things like cars, cars and guns, vehicles, objects like that are symbols of this shared masculinity that's supposed to be passed down to you. And it's, it's sometimes the only way you can hold, or, you know, hold, I have a friend who has a, who has a knife that belonged to his dad and his mom and dad separated and his dad died and, and he never really knew him. And, you know, you hold on to these totems of not just masculinity, but of, of emotion and, and, you know, these, these totems of what makes us who we are. And so for Bug, you know, he loves that car because he loved his dad. He wouldn't love the car as much as he did if he didn't love his dad as much as he did. And, but he has a hard time dealing with who his dad really was, you know, and, and he has a hard time accepting that his father's on this pedestal that he put him on, you know? And I think, I think there's a moment for all of us as kids when we realize our parents aren't perfect, right. you know? There's this moment where you realize, you know, you know, my dad can't beat everybody's dad on the block, you know? And my mom's sweet potato pie isn't maybe the best. And I think the maturity, the thing that helps us as adults when we, we can be mature is to say, yeah, but that's okay, you know? He's still my dad. Or yeah, mom's pie is not that great, but she's our mom and we love her. And I think there's a moment where people realize that. And some people like Bug aren't able to deal with that moment. And, and, and so the, the duster is kind of a symbol of this emotional immaturity, but at the same time, it's also a symbol of this. He just desperately wants this connection. He's still inside this little boy that wants, wants his dad. And so the duster becomes a symbol of that. And then when he's finally able at the end of the book, to let go of certain things, I think it, I think it will make him a better person. Right. Also, you know, another big part of this book is obviously the secondary characters, um, your, your filling cast. And I just wanted to know, you know, some of these characters are really well written and they just provide a, I don't know, nice contextual basis for the rest of the book, especially like Kelvin or I love uncle Booney. Um, Uncle Booney, uh, yeah. and then you know Ronnie Sessions. He's a character. I love his his Elvis tattoos. Those that was that was that was that was pretty funny. I was laughing out loud listening to that description. Um, Do you know a guy? Do you know a guy with the Elvis tattoos? Yeah, I was going to ask you. I got to know. <laughs> so I won't say who it is, oh, okay. but I do know a person. They don't have. Now here's the funny thing. They don't have Elvis tattoos. <laughs> they have a bunch of. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the rap group, but there's a rap group called Wu-Tang Clan. Yes. Uh, I have a friend. 
who has a ton of Wu-Tang Clan tattoos. And we were young listening to it and stuff. I said, you know, blank person, you know, you may not like them when you get older. Do you sure you want to get a full sleeve? And he was like, Wu-Tang forever, man. And all the like, killer bees. And I'm like, all right. So now in our 40s, whenever I see him, I do, I do nudge him a little bit. I said, you still want that tattoo? And he's like, I'm trying to get it covered. I'm trying to get it. And not that he hates Wu-Tang. <laughs> It's just, you know, you're 46 years old now and you, you work in an accounting firm. Right. So it's like, you know, you can never go to a picnic with sleeve rolled up. Um, so, but I, I took that idea and put it, gave it to Ronnie because Ronnie's like that. And Ronnie's somebody who never matures, never grows. Ronnie in many ways is the yin to bug. Yeah. yeah. You know, he'd bug if bug was stupid. You know, it's right. like, yep. Come from yep. the same background, and you know, you know, Ronnie's white bug is black. They come from the same small town, you know, broken homes, broken men that are trying to do the best they can. And so, Ronnie is sort of what bug would be without bug's skills. And um, you know, it's funny, Ronnie's such a piece of shit, but he's <laughs> farming in spite of himself, yeah. you know, and funny, and he's he's dumb, but he's he's dumb, but he has he's cunning and i think that's the thing that i think makes him an interesting character you know he's not as smart as bug but he damn sure is cunning and he you know he's he's a snake you know don't don't make no mistake about that um and like reggie reggie's dumb too but reggie's sort of a sweetheart he loves his brother you know so he's just gonna go along with whatever ronnie says you know and kelvin is as close to that bug has to having a brother and he's you know he's that friend you know I, I, that I think every guy has that friend that there's a scene in um the movie The Town with uh Ben Affleck, ben Affleck. and he comes in and uh Jeremy Renner's sitting on the couch and he's like, you know, I need you to go with me. We're gonna hurt some people and I can never ask you can you never ask me about it again? And Jeremy Renner's like, Well, who car are we taking? And I think <laughs> we all like to think that we have a friend like right. that that's got your back no matter what, will help you move or help you move a body. And I think that's an important part of um of healthy relationships. Not saying you need to move a body, <laughs> but you need to have that kind of <laughs> And um, so Kelvin was kind of the, my example of that for Bug. And I wanted all of those guys. And, and, and so, and you know, look, the character like Jenny, who's just in a couple scenes, but I wanted to give them all agency. Right. And I didn't want them to be cannon fodder. I wanted them to have their own hopes and dreams and desires and faults and foibles and, and fears. And um, it, it, it just, you know, it just came together in a way that I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it shocks. It shocked me because a lot of those characters, the way they end up in the book is not the way I originally planned for them to end up. And so I kind of surprised myself a couple of times. And, uh, you know, even characters like Bug's mom, you know, people, <laughs> she's, 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 a, she's a firecracker, but uh, he still loves her, you know, because that's his mom. You know, just like he still loves his dad. I think we, I think that's relatable to a lot of people. Yes. Yep. Even these supporting characters that play a minor role in terms of the time on the page, there's no way they're a minor role in creating this fabric of the story, in creating the universe. Oh, man, thank you. Everyone just plays a role, executes it, and they're written exactly how you would expect real life to to happen. And uh, makes it real. Makes it real. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Before we, we ask you a little bit more about your writing career in general and some other things, what's next for Bug? I mean, I'm praying <laughs> I get to see him again and I think, get to learn um, more about him. I have an idea. Um, so when I wrote Blacktop Wasteland, the first draft ended very differently than what is in bookstores right now. Um, and uh, my agent, uh, he said, you know, I really like this character. I, I think you could do more with him. And at first I was very, oh, I don't know. But now I'd like to catch up with him maybe 10 years down the road when uh, Javon and Darren are older and, and see what happened to him. You know, did him and Kia work it out? How's his relationship with Javon and, and, his, and Darren and his son and his daughter, Ariel? How was his life after the events? You know, there's a lot of stuff that, a lot of terrible things, poor bug. There's a lot of terrible things that happen in Blacktop Wasteland. And so I, I wonder how, he will be handling those things. And I wonder if his, if his intended purpose to break this chain from his dad to him, to his, his boys, did it work? And how are they, you know, where are they at in their lives? And, and, you know, because his bug 
is something going to happen where he's going to have to get behind the wheel of a car again? And, and you know, I sort of have an idea. Um, I'm playing around with this idea of maybe Javon trying to become a legit, like, NHRA driver, or like National Hot Rod Association driver, and maybe running afoul of some people and having to go to his dad, but not wanting to go to his dad because they don't have the greatest relationship. Mm. You know, and maybe instead of, like, Bug leaving, Mayakia and the boys left. Maybe he stayed in Red Hill and they moved away. And 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 how does that work? And does, you know, is he able to have some kind of connection with them, even though Javon hates him and Darren has him on like a pedestal? So, and and how will that work out? And how is he dealing with the fallout of everything? So there's definitely some, there's, I put like this, I've, there's definitely some scribbles that have been put down for, uh, for Bug and, and, and the rest of the Montage clan and, and, where they end up and and how things would uh, be in the future. So definitely something on the horizon, I think, for him and, and the rest of the game. That is the exact answer <laughs> I was hoping to hear. <laughs> yeah, I was – I don't know if it's because I listened to it via audiobook, but I just – I think this would be a great movie or, you know, miniseries or, or something. I, I just could – Well, we, we did sell the option rights early this year. Oh, okay. So. Okay. Oh, wow. Cool. Okay. Yeah. All right. A company called Pitcher Start. So uh, the guy who used to run – uh, Liongate has uh, uh, bought the option. So maybe things get a little better. We'll see. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it, man. I And yeah. you know what's funny? I would love to see it not just because I wrote it. I just think it would be cool. I think it would be it's a cool a, yeah. movie. You know, it's, like, it's a killer last, story, yeah. Since, since you guys have both read the book, you'll know what I'm referencing. But that last car chase, I would love to see somebody who knows how to do oh. stunt work do that car chase so to watch uh, that to read that on the page blew my mind to see it on film i yeah oh man i don't know what i'd do that was something that was really <laughs> something wow so i'd be sitting there just like everybody else like oh my god this is i'm shit. not gonna sleep tonight now <laughs> thinking about casting now i'm gonna be up all night trying to go through my head with uh some fan casting trying to figure out uh, <laughs> who i'd want to see play that role my god Oh, the duster. Can you imagine seeing the duster on film? I'd, I'd go man, to an IMAX for that. Oh, man. I just I can see an <laughs> opening tracking shot of the of the first chapter. And yes. You hear, you hear yes. Warren Crocker talking a lot of shit and you have this tracking shot across the ground and it comes up to the duster and it oh, slowly man. rises up the duster until you rise up and you see this guy's feet and then you see this guy and then you see the face and it's just Bug leaning against the duster with his arms oh, crossed. Man. So it's like, yeah. So Shit, I, I, I then the tension. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You hear this this guy just running his mouth, and then you see this dude, this very stoic dude, and you you know in a scene like that, they're gonna have a conflict. It's just it's just the way the narrative has to go. So like I said, I write cinematically, so I kind of think about okay. stuff like that. Right, so well, yeah. And then hearing the sirens go off and the, yeah. and the badges come up, like the tension in that scene would be insane. Oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, we were wondering if you could share a little bit more about, you know, you as Sean, the writer, Sean, the person. Um, tell us about okay. your journey, how you got here, how okay. you began to write. Um, so I grew up, like I said, really poor in, in Matthews. And um, I started reading. My mom likes to tell people I started reading when I was four. I don't know how true that is. I think that's a myth. But, uh, I knew I remember reading really Typical early. Mom. And uh, yeah, she's like, oh, he was reading and talking and, you know, solving for X when he was four. But um, <laughs> but I did, I remember reading, like, actual, like, comic books and stuff when I was five or six. I remember I could read before I went to school. And I loved reading. And I grew up in a household, you know, really poor. My grandma was a big reader. She loved, she loved Harlequin romances. And so those were my first books that I read. Were Harlequin. I would just take her Harlequin romance. Didn't understand half of what was going on, but it was like, oh, this is pretty cool. It's a pirate. And He's in love with this this lady who's not a pirate, and um, <laughs> and so what happened was when I started getting a little older, uh, you know, of course I discovered libraries and stuff like that. And uh, but the thing that really had a big influence on me as a reader and a writer was we used to go to this thrift store, and in this thrift store there was a bin, like a big basket, and you could get five paperbacks for a dollar. And so, you know, you you just it was just a grab bag. You didn't know what you're gonna get. So I was just going in and grab books. So I started reading everything from Agatha Christie to, like I said, Robert Ludlum and Eric Amler and, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle and, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Donald Goins and Chester Himes and Raymond Chandler and uh, biographies like Peter the Great and Alexander the Great and, and, and stuff like that. So I just, you get that grab bag of books and you just, I just read through them. And so what happened was 
when I was in the ninth grade, my English teacher, um, I wrote a, uh, <laughs> we had to write a reimagining of a classic. We had to write the ending, like, like a 2000 word essay. And I wrote this really gory um, reimagining of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And my English teacher hated it. She hated it. She said, oh, this is just awful. And she just kept on going on this tirade about how awful it was. But then at the end, she like, but you do have a talent for writing. I just wish you write something else. And so I was like, oh, wow, okay. And I met an, another English teacher in 11th grade named Mr. Jeff Bone, who really inspired me to like take it seriously, like to really get serious about writing. So what happened was I got out of high school, went to college, had to drop out of college. Um, my mom got really ill, so I had to come out of college to help her. And then after that, I kind of bounced around for a while, did a lot of different things, but I always kept writing. Uh, I was a bouncer, I was a construction worker, I worked, I was a retail manager for a, a number of years. Uh, <laughs> I was a mascot uh, for a, a, a fast food place. I did a lot of different stuff, but I just kept writing. And around 2010, 2009, I said, okay, I'm gonna get really serious about writing. I took a creative writing course uh, online and um, just really focused on trying to write something strong to publish. And nobody wanted it. So anyway, <laughs> what ended up happening was I had a friend, and this is a true story, I swear to God, I had a friend who's a belly dancer, right? So she goes to New York to do a show. From, she leaves Virginia, goes to New York, does the show. When she's in New York, she meets a guy named Todd Robinson. Todd Robinson used to publish a magazine called Thug Lit. It was a crime magazine. She comes home and tells me, hey, I, knew, I met this guy. You should contact him. He posted a magazine and he's looking for stories. And I said, well, I don't really write, because at the time I wasn't really writing crime. I was trying to write horror stories. And she's like, well, he pays a hundred bucks or whatever. I'm like, I'll, I'll write a crime story. And I so, <laughs> yeah, I wrote one, had no inclination that it would ever get published. I was like, you know, worth a shot. Sent it to him. He published it and it was, it was called The Rat and the Cobra. And that was my first published crime story. And then I just, it just clicked. I said, maybe crime is my genre. Maybe it's not these other things I'm trying to do. So then fast forward a few years, published a bunch of different short stories in different magazines and anthologies and stuff. And I wrote a um, um, mystery novel called My Darkest Prayer, set in small town Virginia about a former deputy named a guy of mixed race, heritage, wife, uh, his dad's white, his mom's black. I wrote that and it got published by a company called Intrigue Publishing out of Maryland. And it did all right, people seemed to respond to it pretty well. And so um, when that book was coming out, I saved up all my money and I went to a convention called BoucherCon, this big mystery convention. And it was in Florida that in 2018. And I went to Florida and I was trying to promote my darkest prayer. But while I was down there, I was lucky enough to be asked to sit on a panel and I'm a nobody writer. I mean, I've written some short stories, but I didn't have any books out. But my friend, Eric Pruitt, who's a great Southern writer and filmmaker, he got me on a panel. And I was on his panel with Ace Atkins and Stephanie Post and uh, Alex Segura and Eric and me. And after the panel, oh, I got to tell you guys this. I got to tell you guys this. So this panel was about Southern crime fiction, right? And we're talking about race and poverty and class and everything that in history, everything that makes Southern fiction great. And at the end of the panel, this lady stands up and she's like, well, I don't have a question. I have a comment. I'm like, here we go. All right. And so she said that, basically she said, you know, I know that the antebellum period was bad for some people, but I miss that, that antiquated, beautiful etiquette and manners and just, and so nobody said nothing. You could hear a pin drop. Oh, and Eric was like, Sean, would you like to take it? I was like, I would love to take it. So <laughs> Game time. I told you. I told the lady, I was like, hey, you know, I understand what you're saying, but I don't know if it was bad for some people as opposed to being horrific for some people. And um, and then she said, well, I just feel like we're getting pushed aside as white people. I'm like, oh, you'll be all right. I said, I'm going to help you. We're, I'm going to teach you how to drive while black and shop while black. I'm going to show you how to get through this. We'll work through this together. And everybody laughed and took the tension out of the room. And a guy came up to me after the panel and he said, hey, my name is Josh Gessler. And I'm an agent, and I really like what you said on the panel. Do you have anything you're working on? At the time, I had Black Tie Wasteland in the can. I said, well, I just finished this Southern Heist novel. He said, well, look, when you get home, send it to me. And I didn't send it to him for two months because I really didn't think he was being serious. And I finally sent it to him. That was in November of 2018. He signed me in December of 2018. We sold the book to Flatiron for a two-book deal in 2019. And that's how Black Tie Wasteland came to be. Nice. That's that's oh, yeah. one heck of a story. I'm I mean, glad you were on that all that panel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my smart ass mouth was what got me a book deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
it's like bug being honest is going to get you somewhere though. It's going to get you through. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, your story makes me think I'm a teacher in DC public schools and I mean, just what your, your, your book itself, but also your story as a writer, I feel like could mean so much to, uh, you know, different high school English programs and different writing, uh, groups out there that we have. It'd be amazing for that, your story to be out there for the youth. I owe a lot to, uh, and I, I still call him Mr. Bone, even though now, like, we're both old and we've had, like, we've had dinner together before, so it's like, he's not Mr. Bone, but Jeff Bone, my English teacher in 11th grade, I owe a lot to him because he was, people don't realize, and, you know, you know, props to you, because people don't realize how important teachers are to just, sometimes, you. I was lucky, I had a good support at home, my mom was always, you know, if you want to be a writer, I'll support you 100%. But not everybody has that. There are a lot of people that come from backgrounds where, you know, if you can't feel it, touch it, or, or, or smell it, they don't think it's a valuable uh, skill. And so a lot of times people come from homes where writing is looked down upon with disdain. And so a lot of great writers never get a chance because their mom or their dad or their uncle or their grandfather, you know, oh, you and your fancy book reading. And so teachers are, are, are the fanners of that flame. You know, they keep that, that hope alive in a lot of kids. And so... I tell anybody, you know, if it wasn't for people like Mr. Bone who supported me and, and I don't know if I would be doing this because he just really believed in me, you know, and, and, and it's something when a, a person that you respect believes in you, even if you don't ever succeed at what you choose to do, at least you try, you know, and that it, it means a lot. It really does. So that's great to hear. And between that and you just not giving up writing, you just kept writing through the other day jobs. You always wrote, you always wrote. And then. You know, you came out on top and, and got the break. So uh, that's inspiring. It's funny, though, that's because, like, you know, it, you, it's weird because writing was the one thing that always gave me solace, you know? It, it, no matter whether I was going through bad, I had a bunch of bad relationships. If I was going through bad relationships or bad jobs or in a really rough spot, you know, you know, it was a time where, like, you know, I was working two jobs trying to keep my piece of crap car going and, you know, I'd come home and I used to have this old, uh, <laughs> I'm telling you how old I am. I used to have this old word processor that was like a typewriter, but you could plug it into a monitor and it could also be a monitor. <laughs> and I remember writing on that and just whenever I wrote, no matter what was going on, it, I always felt at peace. And so it was one of the things I, I don't think I knew how not to do it. You know, I just, I had to do it. I had to write. And I'm not saying that you have to feel like that to be a writer. But I think it helps, you know, I, I think it helps a lot because I don't like to say this a lot because it sounds egotistical, but writing is the one thing in my entire 46 years on this earth that I feel like I'm really good at. I, and that's not because of the book deal. That's not because of the award. It's just, I just feel it. I just, it's the thing that's most, most natural to me. You know, it, it, it just comes out. And I think you've got to try to, Follow that dream no matter where it goes. You have to. You always, you know, don't leave with regrets. You know, don't leave this planet with regrets. And that's one of the things. I mean, I tell anybody, people always ask me now, you know, what do I do? I want to be a writer. I'm like, just keep writing. Keep writing. That's great advice. I love hearing that. Yeah. Don't stop writing. We like your books. Um, So we don't want to take up too much. (laughs) I'm working on a new one right now. So good. good. (laughs) I'll give you a real quick. I'll give you a real quick elevator pitch on sure. that one. So this one, it Please. takes place in uh, the same area. So I'm trying to create a essay called Be Shared Universe. So it takes place it takes place in the same area, but this one is about two fathers, uh, one black, one white, both ex-cons, whose uh, gay sons were married and they were murdered a little while after they got married. And so these two men decide to investigate the crime um, because they, A, they feel like the police are dragging their feet, and B, they want to redeem themselves because neither one of them accepted their son's uh, sexuality growing up. And so they want to redeem themselves for the poor job they did raising their children at the same time find revenge for the kids. So you have these two sort of alpha male, you know, tough guys uh, kind of immersing themselves in their child, their children's world to find uh, the people that did it and uh, exact their... Uh, their bloody vengeance. So, so it's 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 uh <laughs> it's sort of it's like I told somebody it's Rolling Thunder meets the Defiant one. So oh, there we you go. don't know Rolling Thunder. It's a great movie. William oh, Devane yeah. and Tommy Lee Jones. Go somebody gets their hand cut off in the trash compactor. Oh, yeah. Go check it out. It's a great movie. But, uh, <laughs> 
can we put a pre-order in now yeah. for that? <laughs> a pre-publication or a pre-written order? I'd do that. I'm in the I'm in the midst of, rev- of revising the revisions right now. So, and it's it's funny because whenever you write, so I don't know about anybody else, but whenever I write, there's a moment where you come up with the idea where you're like, huh, that's a pretty good idea. It's all right. Then you start writing, it's like, oh man, it's pretty good. And then halfway through, you're like, oh, this is shit. What am I doing? What are words? Just throw the goddamn computer out the window. And then if you're lucky, you get through that and you realize at the end of it, it's like, eh, sorry, not bad. I did the best I could with what I had, you know. And so hopefully, um, you know, hopefully people will like it the same way they like Black Tie Wasteland. So. Are you a are you a plotter or are you a pantser? Do you do, you do long outlines or just just sit down and write the whole thing? I can't do the pantsing thing. I'm a hybrid. I, you know what? Really, I, my my style, what I do is I come up with an idea and I write a three page or four page synopsis. And I basically tell myself the story, but without any dialogue, just the narrative. Just this is what this person, this is who this guy is and what this gal is. And this is what they did. And then they went to this place. And they went to that place. And once I can get that synopsis down, I can write the book. It doesn't have to follow the synopsis word for word or beat for beat. The synopsis is just a roadmap, but it kind of gives me an idea about where I want to go. And from there, I can go on any tangent I want. I, I, I envy anybody who can just sit down and pants it out, man. I can't. I'm, that's too scary for me. But then I'm also too lazy to do a whole lot of outlining. So the synopsis kind of works in the middle for me. I'm terribly lazy. It's like, I'm not doing all that. I have friends who have like big whiteboards and they're writing like all types of yeah, addendum yep. and they're eye grabbing sentences. And I, I'm not doing all that. So, <laughs> I just want to tell the story, man. I just want to get into it. Nice, happy so, right. medium. Yeah. yeah. Well, we want to we want to respect your time, so we have a few personal questions here to ask you. Okay. You know, feel free to uh, rapid fire, give us something. All right. But um, I heard somewhere you're an avid hiker. Favorite trails in the uh, Mid Atlantic area? Favorite trail? Two. I have two favorite trails. One is the Beaver Dam Trail in Gloucester, my hometown, and then one is the uh, Lake Anna State Park Natural Trail. I like that one. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go up there and there's old mines, and it's creepy as shit. But um, but I like it. So those are my two favorite trails. I hike. okay. Nice. All right. So you you mentioned you like cars. Uh, give me your takes on the Tesla. How you feel about the Tesla? I want to. Is that a dicey one? <laughs> I want to hate the Tesla because it feels like when you're in one, like, are we in a car? What are we driving? Are we floating? <laughs> Is this like a? Are, are we riding on magnets? I, it doesn't give me the visceral. It doesn't feel like a '71 Impala. It doesn't feel like you know, like no. a like a '68. Javel, it just doesn't. Even when you take off, it's like I need that roar. I need those trumpets, man. And yep. I mean, I admire the, the fuel economy, but it ain't. It's just, it ain't boss, man. It's like just. It, I, I'm not getting a Tesla. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they need to get an uh, electric car that has that sound. I think that was in a movie with like Kevin James. <laughs> yeah, anyway. give me an electric car with duels, and we can maybe talk. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <sighs> Speaking about cars, I got All one right. for you. Uh, what comes to mind as the best song about cars or even about the freedom that cars? Oh, have? man. Oh, man. Uh, I guess I give you three. Uh, Chuck Berry is no particular place to go. Um, uh, let me see. It's not really a car song, but when I, well, no, I tell you, I take that back. Chuck Berry is no particular place to go. Bruce Springsteen's Thunder Road. No, Jungle Land. Bruce Springsteen's Jungle Land. There it is, Jungle Land. And uh, uh, Tom Petty's uh, Running Down a Dream. I like those. Running Down a Dream always makes me want to just jump in a car and just drive with the windows down and just see where we end up. And I think that's the best thing about a a car song. So Nice. All right, so poetry or nonfiction? (laughs) I like reading nonfiction. Um... But I like writing poetry, so, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think I think I, I like nonfiction books. I read a lot of serial killer stuff. So, <laughs> okay. All true right. crime. True crime. Yeah, a lot of true crime. A lot of true crime. Maybe more than I should. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, not a big nonfiction fan, but if you had to, you got an offer you couldn't refuse. What's one topic you would want to write uh, a nonfiction book oh, about? Oh, I got you. I mean, it goes back to my previous one. I love to do a true crime novel. There's a there was a, a series of murders here in in, in the Tywood area, um, the um, Colonial Parkway murders, 
And I would love to write a true crime uh, book about that. Just investigate that. Um, either that or, no, I'll tell you another one. I would love to write a, a, a nonfiction book about Wendell Scott. He was the first black NASCAR um, driver um, back when NASCAR first started. And uh, he's from, uh, he's from uh, Danville, Virginia. And um, I, I, love, I don't know, I'd love to write maybe even not a book, an article about him because he's such a fascinating guy. He really was, really incredible dude. So yeah, those, those are my two answers to that. I'd pre-order that one too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we like to end this podcast by asking, you know, what our interviewee has either the latest thing they've consumed in either TV or in fiction or, you know, what are you consuming during, you know, these, these trying okay. times? Um, I'll, I'll give you, okay. So I just watched the movie version of um, the devil all the time. It's a Donald Ray Pollock book. They made it in a movie with Tom Holland and uh, Robert Pattinson. I love the movie. It was really good. It was good. I, w- I was going to watch it. I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, I've just finished reading uh, When These Mountains Burn by David Joy. Uh, really good Southern noir, Appalachia sort of rural uh, noir um, book. That was really good. And I am currently listening um, to an uh, album by a group uh, called The Black Pumas. Uh, it's sort of southern bluesy R&B rock. Uh, was one of the th- it, somebody sent it, sent me the link from Spotify, and I just really loved it. Uh, so that's really good. And I, I like to give a real quick shout out. Um, anybody that's listening or watch or listen to the podcast, three writers and three books you should read. Uh, Kelly J. Ford wrote a book called Cotton Mouths. It's about uh, uh, takes place in Arkansas. It's a, a rural noir. It takes place in Arkansas uh, with a female lead. Uh, it's a really great book interesting character. It's so goddamn Southern, you can smell the chicken shit from the page. I love that book. Um, uh, Kelly Garrett wrote a really good book. And I know most people that listen to podcasts may not be into cozies and stuff, but she wrote a really funny, awesome uh, uh, mystery novel that takes place in LA um, called um, Hollywood Homicide. So you know, it's a change of pace, a palate cleanser. You might want to check that out. I love that. Um, and uh, my friend Eric uh, Pruitt, as I spoke about him previously, uh, he has a really great book. It's been out a few years. It was nominated for an Anthony called What We Reckon. It's like if Jim Thompson, who wrote like The Killer Inside Me, if he had a sense of humor, he would have written What We Reckon. It's a really good book. So those are my three recommendations too. So Okay. Okay. Can we, can our listeners find you on social media, Instagram? Yeah. Uh, you Facebook? can find me on Instagram at LeoKing73. You can follow my brain droppings on Twitter at Black Lion King 73 and my author's page on Facebook is S.A. Cosby author. And I love hearing from people. I try to respond as many messages as I can. Although I will say I got a really cool shout out the other night from, I can't believe it, but I got a shout out from Stephen King. And uh, he said he had read oh, Black wow. Tyler. Yeah, and he liked it. And uh, blew my effing mind. I literally felt like my brain was melting. So I've gotten a lot of interesting uh, DMs since then. So <laughs> wow. that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's good that stuff. was crazy, man. Well, thank you, Sean, for joining us. I've been smiling for the last half, the last hour or so, uh, talking with you. Uh, this is definitely the highlight of my week. So anybody listening, go out and buy the book right away. Blacktop Wasteland audiobook was awesome, and um, you can't miss this one. Definitely a candidate for the book of the year, in my opinion. So thanks for joining us today, Sean. This was a this was a blast. Man, thank you guys for having me so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was really nice talking to Sean. We we hope that you enjoyed listening and hope you can catch his book. Next time we're gonna be doing our first part of Separation of Power. Uh, again, Martini said it at the top, but our reading list is going to be Separation of Power for October, Executive Power for uh, November, and then Memorial Day to finish off the year in December. Yeah, so plan ahead, and if you want to read any of those books to follow along a little better with the podcast, uh, we'd be happy to have you continue listening and following along. As always, we got to shout out our patrons. Uh, that include our special operator, Sherry F., uh, and our special agents, uh, we have Matt, Roman, Dawn, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, and Jeff. Thanks to you guys. Uh, we couldn't do it without you. Don't forget to please subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at MitchRapPod.com 
or using the Twitter or Instagram handle MitchRapPod. And as always, let's do it together. Just, Just let, let Mitch, Mitch be Mitch. Be Mitch. Oh, damn. There we go. You're better than me. You shouldn't let me do okay. that anymore. No, it's all right. You. It's okay. That's yeah, all you. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster, but thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Gorilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.